spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Definitely looking to a bright start for 2021. It's episode 349 of the Down and Nerdy podcast. I'm James Witham, and yeah, this is when we're going to start to see a lot of premieres start to pop up for a lot of different series. Diving into that heavy this week with the showrunners for Fox's Prodigal Son. So Chris Fedak's going to be with me. Sam Sclaver going to join me as well to talk about all things season two. Yes, we'll talk about the season one finale. How could I not? Ask them about the season one finale of Prodigal Son. Also, yeah, big spoiler-filled review of season three of Cobra Kai coming up. An extra-sized edition of what we're reading because a ton of new books came out. DC's Future State started this week. And not one but two amazing sponsors once again. Amazon Original Stories, The Faraway Collection, The Faraway Stories, sponsoring the show this week. And Rakuten's Kobo. So if you want some great stories... Yeah, I've got a couple of very, very good options for you. But as I said, going to have a spoiler-filled review of Cobra Kai. We'll start that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, my name is Mary Mauser from Cobra Kai, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Technically, I guess you could call it the very first premiere of 2021 on the TV side. Anyway, what a way to kick the year off, both literally and figuratively. No, I'm not sorry for saying that. That's right, season three of Cobra Kai, the first season to actually premiere on Netflix of Cobra Kai. And there was just so much going on in this season. And really, they leaned heavy. By the way, some spoilers ahead for this season and past seasons in this review. Since it's been out a little bit, I feel like we could talk spoilers. Okay, so they leaned heavy into the guilt and impacts of the school fight that happened at the end of season two, in the beginning of this season. And, I mean, that really encompassed the first at least couple of episodes, I thought, anyway. They, they leaned very, very heavy into that, especially with, with, with Johnny's guilt and, and Daniel's and the way that everybody's just sort of upset for their own various reasons. And then when you get to see what happens with Miguel when he actually does wake up from his coma and how he feels about Johnny in the beginning, or at least how it seems like he feels about Johnny anyway, and how it's actually Miguel's family that helps bring Johnny back into the fold in an interesting way. And really, to me, after those first couple of episodes, the show really settles in after that. And actually, Johnny and William Zabka, this might be his best performance yet this season. And he's been really good in this show so far. But Johnny Lawrence, I mean, really shines this season. And especially with that bond with Miguel, the way he gets back on his feet, the, the, the fact that he's kind of finally fighting for himself. I mean, we saw glimpses of that in other seasons, sure. But it's almost like the light bulb goes off over Johnny's head this season. And he starts to really kind of figure it out through various interactions, I think, that that kind of piece things together for him. And actually, this season, there's so many stories about redemption in general, but there's also betrayal involved here as well. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in this particular instance, right? Like, I'll get to Hawk in in a second. We'll talk about that. But that betrayal there, 
I thought was really interesting. There, there's also some bad ones too, obviously, because betrayal is not always a great thing. It usually isn't. But the way that Johnny's arc really goes this season to me, again, I, I got to look back on that and say that was the big highlight of this season for me. I also thought the way they spotlighted Sam's arc as well with the panic attacks and the mental health aspects of, of her, you know, be going back into that school and into that situation, how she deals with how she feels responsible for what happened to Miguel and just the whole situation in general. I thought that was a really big moment too. And her and Tori, man, that is fire. Every time they're on screen together, whether they're fighting or not, that is absolute fire. I, I love every minute of that, even though it freaked Sam out a little bit. But I also want to touch on, before I move on, I want to talk about the nostalgia characters. Yeah, I'm talking about Kumiko. I'm talking about Chosen. I'm talking about Allie. And Allie was so important to Johnny's development in this season just in not just the episode that she was in, but the episode before that, when him and Miguel are trying to figure out the whole Facebook thing, I thought that was hilarious. That the the scene the scenes where they were taking pictures at like art museums and sushi bars and stuff, I thought that was hilarious. And and this show just deals with humor. It doesn't use it all the time, but it picks its perfect moments to use it. Right? But the nostalgia characters, and this is one of the brilliant parts about Cobra Kai, is that they know how to use their characters, and how much to use their characters from the past movies. And this is a mistake that gets made a lot in other shows and other movies when you're bringing in characters from the past, right? If Especially if it's more than just a cameo. You don't feel like you have to overuse them, but the way they use like Kumiko to help Daniel kind of get his life back on track, right? Of course, Daniel decides to go to Okinawa, runs into her. Not only does she help him mentally just get himself back on the right path, but literally helps his business by introducing him to the little girl he saves in Karate Kid 2, who just happens to work for the car manufacturer that's going to be the one that saves Daniel's business. And how Chosen showed Daniel another side of Miyagi's karate and, and the, the heritage and the history behind that and how they sort of buried the hatchet in a way and seeing that different side of Chosen and how he went on a different path after what happened with he and Daniel. And then using Ali as sort of a, they give you that will they or won't they kind of moment. And, and Johnny, you see Johnny sort of make his peace with everything that happened with Allie. And he got to apologize to her. And the conversation between Allie and Daniel's wife. that Those scenes too? Priceless. Love that. That was so true to life too, by the way. Whose wife wouldn't want to meet the ex from high school, right? To, to find out all the information that your husband or other significant other or whoever probably didn't really want to tell you. Or at least through someone else's lens. I thought that that was really, really hilarious. As well, but the way that they use these characters, they're there for an episode, maybe two, and then they're gone. I thought that that was brilliant. And the way you bring back ex members of the Cobra Kai, too, and you place them in the the perfect situations and you get to see them in different perspectives. They don't overuse their nostalgia characters, they don't lean heavy on the old movies other than using them as story elements of what's going on today. 
right? And I think that that is absolutely amazing and something this show's always done extremely well. But, I mean, going back to this season, you see how Miguel literally and figuratively gets back on his feet, even if you think it's too soon. You're like, oh, that's not realistic. There's no way he could have come back from it that quickly. I mean, obviously, that that's, a, that's an argument, right? But at the same time, you really want to tug at that thread when you've got such a good story that's going on here and how you see Miguel's recovery actually affecting members of the current Cobra Kai like Hawk. Like, I honestly thought that after everything that Hawk did, that he would not break from Kreese's ranks. I thought he was Cobra Kai to the death, right? I really thought he was. And then when you see him turn in that fight at the LaRusso house, that was such a big power moment for me because you still you saw that like his humanity is still there. And that's what you don't see increase, right? Is that you don't see you see that, that humanity is just not there. And we get some of Crease's backstory, and I'll talk about that in a second, but I want to go back to Hawk because I just thought that that was a huge, huge moment. And to see and I think Johnny too kind of helped snap him out of that a little bit. In that when he kind of gets up in his face, especially in some of his old students, right, that thought that he failed Miguel. And not only do does Miguel show them, yeah, he didn't fail me, but he didn't fail you guys either. Stop drinking the Kool-Aid sort of thing, right? I thought that that was really, really cool and how they put that together. But I wanted to now I want to talk about Crease and that backstory because it I mean, it was interesting and it reveals how he becomes who he becomes ultimately in the present day and even back when Johnny was rolling with the Cobra Kai in his high school days, it wasn't as impactful as I thought it could be though. They, they do use it as a tool to set up what's a character that I believe is going to be coming into season four. It's almost, it's almost obvious what's going to be happening there, but I'll, I'll get to that here at the end. But I, I feel like that that could have been, I mean, they didn't really lean on it too heavily, but at the same time it was like, you know, I, I don't know that you absolutely needed that. I, did we need to understand why Kreese became the man he was? I don't know that we really needed that. I don't think that it was terrible that they did that, but I don't know that we needed to spend the time on that. But they really did give a lot of equal time to a lot of these different characters and a lot of these different arcs. And I mean, I mean, hey, look at Mrs. LaRusso. You know, just jumping out there when she smacks Crease. I mean, I was like, "Woo! Look out for her!" You you did not see that fire from her, not to this level anyway, in previous seasons. So that was really really cool to see, and kind of seeing how everybody works together for this common cause, and that's what you get at the end of this season, right? When you see Johnny Lawrence and his Cobra Kai or Eagle Fang, whatever you want to call them, they walk in on Miyagi soil. To train with the Miyagi-Do Karate Group, that was a surreal moment. If you were a longtime Karate Kid fan, did you ever think you would see that in a million years? But that's what it's come to, not just to stop Crease, but also Robbie brainwashing, Robbie being brainwashed by Crease. Now with the Cobra Kai and you know how that affects both Johnny and Daniel, especially Johnny though, because that that actually is his son and the only way to not only stop crease but try and you know reason with Robbie the only way to do that they realize they finally have to 
really join forces, not like the buddy cop thing that they had earlier in the season, which was entertaining too, by the way, but ultimately ended up in them, in them fighting, which they always does, which is another thing that Allie pointed out and helped out in this season too, by the way, another point in her favor. But it was just a really surreal moment to watch them walk in together. And then obviously the tease at the end, with Chris making the phone call, I think you and I both know that's Terry Silver on the other end of the line, based based on the history between those two, and we know goes on with them. And that was the most important part about the Chris backstory was to tell us that hey, guess who's coming to season four, sort of thing. You sort of jingle the keys over here and get get your attention, like hey, yeah, here's who's going to be coming to season four. But ultimately, another f- fantastic season. Of Cobra Kai. I I don't know how they keep doing it. Honestly. I really really don't. But they really know how. To bring this series together. And just keep delivering. One hit. After another. Do I think it was as strong. As say like a season one. I don't know. I mean I think it's, it's hard to do that. But I don't think that there was absolutely anything wrong. With this season. At all. And I already can't wait for season four. This week, the Dan and Nerdy Podcast is once again brought to you by the Far Away Collection from Amazon Original Stories. Basically, five short stories of modern retold fairy tales. It's a nice collection with some amazing authors. And these aren't like your same old regular stories, whether it's, you know, a troll looking for somebody's cell phone under a bridge at certain times or, you know, like an airing of grievances from some sort of the wicked fairy tale villainesses of the past or a story like The Cleaners from Ken Liu, where you've got the power of memory and magic, which is really, really neat. These are very unique twists on classic fairy tales. So you'll get some vibes, but at the same time, you're going to get a lot of new here as well. As a matter of fact, if you're an Amazon Prime member, you can actually listen and read these for free. You've got option to do either one. So you can listen to the Faraway Stories new short story collection from Amazon Original Stories right now at Amazon.com slash Faraway Stories. That's Amazon.com slash Faraway Stories. Remember, Prime members listen for free, but if you want the whole collection and you want to keep it, it is a very, very low price. So go check out all five amazing fairy tales. Maybe find something wicked, something charming, but you'll find something you like with the Faraway Collection. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Season 3 of Cobra Kai from Netflix. Up next, we're going to get this 2021 premiere season rolling with our interview with showrunners from Fox's prodigal son, Chris Fedak and Sam Sclaver. Join me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Keiko Agena from Fox's prodigal son, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. So it's hard to not think about that season one finale of Fox's Prodigal Son. I feel like we've been waiting for this season two to start forever, and it's finally going to be here on January the 12th on Fox at 9 p.m. And who better to talk about this thing with than with the showrunners? It's Chris, Chris Fedak and Sam Sklaver. How you doing, guys? We're doing great. Doing great. Thanks for having yeah. Can't wait. I can't wait to see the premiere. It feels like it's been forever. It really does, and I mean, but but before we talk about that, though, I mean, how can I not go back to that season one finale? I mean, the fans are still talking about it. I I knew you said in another interview that what happened with Ainsley was kind of always the plan. Now, do you feel like having such a focus on Malcolm in season one and his fear of becoming his father was also part of the plan for you to help kind of pull off this surprise so brilliantly? Oh, absolutely. 
I think that the that for our perspective, it's like you know the focus has always been on Bright. I mean, he's our main character. You have Tom Payne; he's incredible. So it's like you know we love exploring his psychology, his trauma, his pathos. But it also gave us this opportunity is that we were like waiting. We had a sucker punch that we knew we were going to hit the audience with in our finale. We knew it. I mean, it was one of those things where I think that pretty soon after Sam and I came up with the idea and we're pitching it that we had this idea for Ainsley, you know, killing somebody in the in, uh, in the last episode. So it was something that we were building toward. And the more we focused on Brighton, the more we did all the great character stuff that we you know really enjoyed doing. We knew the sucker punch was waiting. So not that the focus is going to be off Malcolm now, because, I mean, it won't be for a lot of reasons, but how much more of a focus will we see on Ainsley now this season, whether it be her mental state or just in general? We've always been making two shows in one, The Prodigal Son. We were always making a really great New York City procedural cop show with Lou Diamond Phillips, Frank Hartz, Aurora Perno. But we, we also had this great family show with... Right, and his father, mother, and sister. And I do think that Ainsley is going to start to step up in the family more. But it's not just Ainsley stepping up. It's what Martin is feeling about Ainsley. It's what Jessica may be intuiting about her daughter and worrying about her daughter. And it's what Bright is going to have to deal with, with all the ramifications. So there's no way to avoid what Ainsley did at the end of our finale, nor would we want to. And, And Halston Sage is just, such a phenomenal actress in Ainsley that I am excited to delve into her more. I think in the, the mythology of our show was that Malcolm Bright was always the one who was most affected by his father's crimes and that his sister was too young to remember. I think that's what the family always told themselves. But really, Ainsley was four or five when her father was arrested, and that's old. Mm-hmm. That's definitely old enough to have some trauma you know, implanted on your psyche and it's definitely something that Ainsley is going to have to come to terms with and reckon with. And even if you look back to earlier episodes of season one, when Ainsley is interviewing her father and her cameraman gets stabbed, who she's dating, she doesn't go to help her cameraman. She goes to pick up the camera and continue the interview. So if you go back to season one, you'll see that there were some breadcrumbs that you know, maybe there's a little bit to Ainsley that we don't really know. Maybe she is a little bit more like her father than we thought, and we definitely saw that at the end of the episode. So it's it's definitely in the forefront of season two, for sure. It's good that you brought up Jessica, because I was actually going to bring her up as well, because, you know, obviously we, as fans, you come in saying, okay, she she probably doesn't know what happened. That's the thing that we infer going into this season. So whether she finds out or not, how much can you tease about the ripple effects for her about the season one finale coming into this season? Well, I think that Bellamy, who's just incredible in the part, is brings such kind of like she's charming and fun, but she also brings that kind of tragedy to the show in the sense that like she started dating another guy and it was going pretty well, and he turned out to be a fucking psych. Excuse me, drop the net bomb. You're and good. He turned out You're to good. Be crazy as well in Nicholas Inside. So. I think that the for her, she's coming from a very specific place of being shattered, you know, and putting her life back together. And the fact, again, doing it again. And the fact that also that, you know, her her knight in, you know, shining armor, Gilaroyo, almost died trying to save her. So I think that those the, the, the fallout for the season two is still being still being felt by her. But now there's new things happening. And of course, like we're always finding that on our show. Well, how do you find, are there other levels to anxiety and suspense and trauma 
And, you know, and, and, and with our cast and with our writers, it's like, yes, there is. We can, we, we can always find 11, 12, and 13 on the meter where we went to usually the 10 last year. And that has to do with the fact that, like, her daughter is now, Jessica's daughter, is acting a little strangely. And that, you know, her son is acting a little strangely. And she's super smart. So it's like the fact of, like, the mystery of what's going on inside Abe's brain and also what happened that night. It's like we've got a bunch of very smart people and things are going to happen and, you know, secrets are going to come out and it's going to lead to, well, let's just put it this way, bad things. Bad things are going to happen. That was something, when Chris and I were joking about taglines for the show, I, I do like bad things are going to happen. It's a, it's a pretty good one for what this family is up against. There's very few happy endings that the Whitleys get to experience, and that will be true in season two. Kind of playing off of that a little bit, and in the grand scheme of the show, I mean, a lot of a lot has changed in the world in general since you all began this series, and even since you've started shooting season two, actually. So how much of what's going on in the world right now or has gone on in the past year is going to factor into this season of the show? I don't know. What are you talking about? What's happening in the world? Something happened? Is that, wait, 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 wait. Is this why people are wearing masks? I'm so, confused. <laughs> so you guys are the ones that are blissfully whenever unaware. Okay, someone, you're the lucky ones. <laughs> whenever I see so, someone without a mask, I always want to go like, oh my God, do you not know? There's a crazy <laughs> thing. I always want to give them the benefit of the doubt that they don't know. Um, I think, but I was just going to say, I think there's there were two real cultural milestone events that, that happened that felt too big to ignore. And one was super early with the murder of George Floyd and all of the different things that came to light after that, where, like I was saying, we are telling a cop show. And we couldn't just keep telling the same cop show and not want to address the systemic racism that's in our society. And we were very lucky, in a sense, to be able to tell that from a different point of view in that all of the police officers on our show are, you know, Louis Filipino and Frank and Aurora, both black. And, and those are, these are issues that we could tell from their point of view. So very early on, we huddled up both with our writers and with all of our actors and said that we need to put this in our show. This isn't something that we can just kind of wipe away and, and keep going because it's important. And like Chris said this earlier, but it's not, racism isn't a case that we can solve. It's nothing that we don't feel in any way that we have the answers. But we also know that just highlighting some of the problems will help add to the conversation. And hopefully through the conversation, more people will understand what, what other people are feeling and what, you know, JT as a black cop, what he is experiencing and how that's going to differ and how we can help educate it. But the other big cultural moment event that we're going through is COVID. And we weren't as excited to address COVID because everyone knows that COVID fucking sucks. Everyone has enough COVID in their life. And I don't need to see Adresa behind a mask unless she is over a dead body. So we're not anti-maskers. We want everyone to be wearing masks all the time, everywhere, except for our protected television show, where everyone is being very safe. And maybe we can have a little escapism from that. So COVID is in the world of our show, but we're kind of playing in a vaccinated world, perhaps, you know, hopefully what our world will look like in a few more months or by the summertime where COVID is something that it is in our world. We, we, we see it, but we're, we're in a more comfortable place in prodigal than sadly we are in real life. 
I hear that. We're talking to Chris Fedak and Sam Sclaver, of course, the showrunners of Fox's Prodigal Son, which will be back on Tuesday, January the 12th. Now, gentlemen, I did get a chance to see the season two premiere a little bit early, of course. No spoilers, but there's a fantastic scene between Malcolm and his father that I think fans are going to freak out over. But, of course, we won't spoil it here, but I will ask you this. Would you say that their relationship will be a bit different this season or no? Absolutely. I mean, it's like Martin and and Bright are sharing a secret. Then, you know, it's like he knows what happened when Nicholas Indicott. He knows that Bright's covered up a murder. And unfortunately, it's like when you have a big secret like that, you probably don't want to share it with your serial killer father. But unfortunately, that's not how it shook out in the end of season two. And now Bright has the secret that he has with his father. And in a weird way, it's like they do have a there's a benefit to that in the sense that his father's been there. He's done that. He's covered up a crime and he knows a little bit of how it works. And so he could have been helpful to his, his son. And that's, that's a, that the, the relationship I think I would say is tragically and also interestingly and entertainingly deepening between the father and son. And, and I just want to say those two guys, Michael Sheen and Tom Payne, I, I, I know exactly which scene you're talking about really standing out and being amazing. But every scene those guys do is electric, and, and I'm at the edge of my seat. It's just like Chris and I have blown up buildings. Mm-hmm. We have chopped off arms. We have smashed hands. And still, when you get the two of them standing face-to-face with a red line between them, those are the most explosive scenes that we could find in our show. Happens to be very COVID-friendly for filming, so I, I, we're, we're not going to take that away. But, but these scenes are something that we keep going back to, and, and it's never, we always like to say, it's never easy for Bright to go to Claremont. It's not like he just goes and swings by his dad's office on the way home. It, it's always hard for him to see his father, and when he goes to see his father, there's always rich, deep scenes that, like, I love to write, and I know our actors love to play, because it's they're just ferocious. The two of them are beasts in those scenes. I love it. You are definitely right about that. Speaking of the cast, actually, you'll have, you'll have some new faces to introduce to us in season two as well. You've got Christian Boyle joining the cast, Michael Potts, and some others. So tell us about tell us what you can about what to expect from them this season. And are there any guest stars coming up this season that you're super excited about? We do have some guest stars that we are super excited about, but we're the, the, some of those are secrets that we are. We're still we are figuring so, out. We are so excited about a guest star. It's killing us that we're not allowed to tell you who Whoa, it is. Oh, nice. But I, do, but I think that when it, when it comes to Christian and when it comes to Michael Potts, what, one of the things we really wanted to do this year is like, you know, uh, last year we had Martin and we had Claremont and we had a cell and we had a hallway. And, you know, this year we were like, this world of Claremont, this, this insane asylum, this psychiatric prison, we wanted to explore more. We wanted to go into other places. And also, like, it was, it, the place is lousy with interesting characters and murderers. So, we, you know, uh, why, why wouldn't Martin go for a console where it's just like, you know what, I don't know anything about medieval, you know, exorcism, but I know of an expert who, who can help you. So it's like, this is a, a part of the show that we're really excited about. We've built a bunch of sets. We've we've kind of like essentially expanded the sandbox for, for Michael Sheen to play with them. And that's a big part. So that's a big part of season two. And that's uh, what we plan to have fun with. Excellent. Can't wait for that. Gentlemen, before I let you go, you've talked about the incredible cast a lot, but there's so many moving parts to the show that it's easy to see that you have an incredible writer's room 
as well. So take us inside that room. And was there a different approach this time now that you're in a second season? And was there kind of an emphasis of, okay, let's go in here and top season one? Well, first off, it's a scary place, the writer's room. This is not a, you know, if you think if you think the show is scary, the writers are a, a dangerous bunch <laughs> in their own right. Yeah. But no, it's like, I think from, from our perspective, it's like when we sat down with the writers this year, we were like, yeah, we always want to top ourselves. We don't want, we don't want to leave anything on the table. We want to shock and we want to expose and we want to really kind of delve into our characters and really kind of tell the most engaging emotional story possible. I think from Sam and I, and the other big thing this year, of course, is like we're doing it all over Zim. Sam and I are both people that like to stand up and pitch and talk and be at the board and, and really kind of enjoy being around some super talented writers. Unfortunately, this year we were doing it on Zoom, so that was definitely, and we were definitely infected by by that. But when you have such an excellent writing staff, like Lisa Randolph, Wendy Calhoun, Elizabeth Peterson, the Zuckerman sisters, you know, these are all an incredible incredible writers who will be who will be running their own shows you know soon enough and so you know for us we, we, we really want to pick up on what they're getting excited by because like you know as writers like sam and i have our perspective and we have like a a vision but also like sometimes you're like somebody else's vision is like well that, oh my god there's so many opportunities there when i first started working in television with my friend josh schwartz it's like sometimes he, he would explain it's like tv is about opening doors as opposed to closing doors and it's like in a movie, you're closing doors as you head to the ending. And TV, sometimes you're opening them as well. And so for us, it's like we really look to our writers as a way of like, it's like who's got the key to the door that's going to give us new, you know, new insight and new energy going into season two and hopefully many seasons into the future. Yeah, I think that's a big thing without looking at my resume and, and trying to pinpoint it. I, I will say that we've all worked on shows where I think it's been a job for some people. And what's really wonderful about our writer's room is that everyone is a fan of the show. Just like you, everyone's like, oh my God, what the fuck is Bryce going to do right now? And everyone is so invested in that way that it's actually really delightful to talk these things out because I'm, we're talking to a bunch of fans that have helped make this show and are just as excited to see what happens as our audiences. So it, it's, it's over Zoom. It's terrible because all of life is terrible right now. But it is nice to see these friendly faces who are as excited about the show as we are. And uh, Chris only says that the writer's room is a scary place because they, they often want us to have answers to questions that we don't know. My, my favorite is being in a meeting and someone asks a question about how, how Ainsley is going to get the blood on her face. And it's like, I don't know, we're making all of this up. All we're doing is making this up all the time, but it's still, it, it's been a pleasure working on it, that's for sure. We'll wait till you guys see what they put together, and it's going to happen on Tuesday, January the 12th at 9 p.m. on Fox. Prodigal Son returns, and oh, you guys have no idea what you're about to get yourselves into. And these guys put something really special together. It's Chris Vidak and Sam Sclaver. Thank you so much for joining me this week, guys. Thank you. Thank you for watching the show. Thank you. And you want to talk about an amazing way to kick off a season yet. Yeah, make sure you are watching Fox's Prodigal Son. Season 2 begins this coming Tuesday, January the 12th at 9 p.m. This week, the Down and Nerdy podcast is brought to you by Kobo by Rakuten. And I've been telling you for about a month now how you can get a 30-day free trial and a free audiobook from Kobo with a fantastic selection. Then they had to go and just crank it up a notch. You could actually win three thousand dollars with Kobo audiobooks open to residents of the U.S. and the U.K. that are 18 years or older. Remember in the U.K. it would actually be 1,000 pounds. 
that you could win. So to enter, all you have to do is start your free trial at Kobo.com slash down and nerdy. You get another entry when you download your first audiobook as part of your free trial. You get one additional entry when you complete listening to that first audiobook as part of your free trial. So they're actually giving you more chances than after your free trial. It's only $12.99 a month after that for one monthly credit. I mean, how amazing is that? And there's a huge catalog of audiobooks to choose from, bestsellers and originals in there, so many different genres. Your audiobook collection is also yours to keep forever. You cancel, you still get to keep your audiobook. So again, make sure you're going to Kobo.com slash down and nerdy, not just for some amazing audiobooks that you can take with you on the go, but for your chance to win $3,000 as well from Kobo. Once again, thanks to Chris Fedak and Sam Sclaver for joining me this week to talk about Fox's Prodigal Son. Up next, a supersized edition of what we're reading. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is colorist Tamara Bondola, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. What a way to kick off 2021 with some amazing stories, whether it be on the page or on the screen. It is time for what we're reading, and it is time to kick off DC's Future State. Going to talk about a couple of books from Future State this week and exercise what we're reading. Let's start with Future State, the next Batman number one from DC. John Ridley writing this one, Nick Darrington doing the art, Tamara Bond villain on the colors, and Clayton Cowles on the letters. Great cover, by the way, too, by Ladron as well. I will say there are a couple of other stories in here, too. You've got Outsiders, Future State number one, also Future State... Arkham Knights, number one, that are a part of this. You want to know those creative teams? I'll have that up at downandnerdypodcast.com. But I really want to focus on this next Batman Future State book because, and there's going to be some spoilers here too, by the way, because the main story centers around peacekeepers of Gotham who've kind of now got a shoot on sight order for anyone in a mask. Wouldn't bode for us very well right now, obviously. But this is, this Batman actually still has plenty of skill. We get to see Batman right away in this book. And the tools are there too, but he also brings a sense of compassion and hope. It's almost like you take the core of Superman's beliefs and put a cowl on it. It's it's It was a very, very interesting approach because as you're reading this book and you see certain scenes and interactions with Batman, you say, well, the Batman we know probably would have handled that differently. Not that Bruce Wayne didn't have compassion as Batman, he did at times, but not like this. It was definitely a different vibe. But, of course, we know about Tim Fox at this point, and as far as Tim Fox goes, he's not exactly welcome back into the fold of the family right away. As a matter of fact, if you see this issue, the Fox family is kind of, as a whole, seems like it's in a bit of disarray, and I won't spoil exactly what's going on with that. But there's speaking of disarray, there's also gangs that are taking over the streets of Gotham. That should be no shock. You got one that's centered around Bane and another one that was a, a bit of a reveal at the end of the book as well. And this book highlights the scope of the problem and very much teases it at the end. But here's the deal. While there were some fresh elements to this book, I kind of feel like the story, this is something we felt before just with different players. I mean, Gotham's in disarray. That's really no stretch, right? And there's there's a mighty oppressive force that needs to be taken down. And I get it, right? But it just feels like, you know, when you're doing something, I, with the whole vibe of Future State to me means, you know, it, it's supposed to feel different. Obviously, maybe the future of Gotham just can't be different. Maybe this is just what Gotham is, and that's the point 
of the story. This is more of a, and by the way, this is more of like the the latter two stories of Outsiders and of Arkham Knights than it is about the main arc because there was some really good storytelling I thought in the main arc, but as a whole, it just didn't have that that future and unique feel to me. A lot of great art in this book though, throughout throughout, especially in that Arkham Knights uh, arc at the end of this. So, I mean, it's definitely worth a read, and it's definitely one that I'm going to keep up with because I want to see where it goes. But I didn't get that wow factor that I was kind of hoping for. I did get that wow factor, though, talking about future state Wonder Woman number one from DC. Maybe that's got something to do with Joelle Jones and her art and teaming up Jordy Belair, possibly. Clayton Cowell's doing the letters for this one as well, but I'll admit I had high hopes going into this one already and the Yara floor character and the first impression I got was very good. So different from Diana in so many ways and with a youthful edge and, you know, maybe a little bit of aggressiveness that definitely brings a different energy to the character, not to mention the design of the suit, the weapons, everything about this just screams good. Right off the bat. So you toss in a Pegasus. I know we're talking horse here, but we're going to talk Pegasus because there's we're doing spoilers here. And I love that the horse's name is Jerry, too, by the way. Just very simple. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it was funny. I'm sorry. I enjoyed it. And it was it was already a winning formula in the first few pages. And the story hadn't even gotten started yet. But it eventually leads us to a trip to the underworld. We know what Yara's mission is. In the very beginning of this book would be easy. You think you think that a trip to the underworld would be easy, right? Nope, never said that. But I mean, the impulse control that Yara has kind of leads to some issues and sets up a pretty good cliffhanger at the end of the book. And what should be a very interesting battle or not, we'll find out when the second issue hits the shelves. Now, it actually, I, I this this actually has an everyday life feel to it. Believe it or not, and there's an everyday life feel to this book in a very unreal setting. It kind of takes you in and makes this such a fun and easy read. It's not a book that's trying to do too much. It's not making it overly complicated. It's just saying, here's our character. Here's our story. Have fun with it. And that's not dumbing it down either. That is an actual, it was brilliantly crafted because, again, you're introducing a brand new character under a classic moniker, and that is not an easy thing to do by any stretch, and that's something that can be easily dismissed, but it's not here because what Joel Jones and Jordi Belair and company have created here is a character that is very, very much not, not just likable, but incredible, quite frankly, and this is one of the best first impressions you can have of a character like this, so every single aspect of this book was appealing to me. And it feels like the start of a new future. And that's a bold thing to say when you're talking about a character that's steeped in 80 years of history, right? Especially celebrating that this year. And that doesn't discount Diana's history. It adds to it, too, by the way. And that's the perspective that you need to get. I mean, it's just one issue, but I didn't expect it to have the strong impact that it did. I actually can't wait to read more from this character. And now I'm even more excited for what's going to be that Wonder Girl CW series as well, especially now that we know the kind of vibe that we're going to get from Yara at some point. Looking forward to this a, a lot, trust me. It's a new era for Star Wars as well. Star Wars The High Republic, there is no fear, number one. And The High Republic has officially kicked off with Kevin Scott doing the writing here, Ario 
and a ditto on the art. Mark Morales assisting with some inks here. Annalisa Leone on the colors and VCs. Ariana Maher on the letters. Phil Noto, anytime you see him as a cover artist, you know that Phil is going to bring it and absolutely does with this one. I'm not going to, again, we're going to do some spoilers here because this book has been out for a few days now, but I'm not going to dive too much into this story. But we do get to, now I want you to remember this takes place before The Phantom Menace. There's a timeline in this book that kind of spells out everything. You, you get that nice Star Wars style crawl that introduces you to the story at the beginning. But it, what's odd about it is, is it's actually a time of peace in the galaxy that's ruled by the Republic and protected by the Jedi, which is not something that we get to experience in a Star Wars story, right? You know, we don't we rarely start with peace in Star Wars. It's it's just very odd. And it never seems to last long. Now, we do get to meet our first Jedi, or should I say Padawan, and that is Keeve. And she and her master, I'm going to try and say this right, Skier. We're going to go with Skier from the name until somebody corrects me. Are surprising. She, he, he kind of springs on her. It's like, here's your trials. Here you go. And they're on a different planet. Says, here's what you need to do. And then, of course, it's never that simple, right? And then you also have the Republic on this in the other side of this story that's preparing to kind of make the Starlight Beacon fully operational. It's basically they're beaming a signal, signal from the outer reaches of the galaxy to just let you know we're here, we're protecting you, you're not alone in the galaxy sort of thing. So it's a, it's a cool thing where you get to meet some different characters like Maru and, and Master Chris, who is a Jedi. And we also get to see a couple of Grandmasters, one that you will definitely, definitely recognize for sure. But when the two stories merge, we find out that the Beacon is maybe causing some trouble before it's even fully operational. But, you know, you got to do your bug fixes, maybe literally in this particular sense, for something like this. So you've got... Keeve, who you want to talk about a Padawan that proved yourself. Keeve definitely does that in a very unconventional way and takes some serious initiative that, you know, maybe could get her into trouble. Maybe not. You'd have to wait and see. And there's some a couple of very cool moments towards the end of this book. But then every time you see Skier, her master in this book, you feel like something's off, right? You can just tell when something's off. And in, in a Star Wars story, that's never necessarily a good thing. As a matter of fact, there's a hint at the end of this book that I, I'm worried it's worst case scenario. Okay? And, and that's as much as I'll say about that. I wonder if you got the same vibe that I did. Now, while this book really had some, first of all, some great art, great action scenes in this book, definitely had a lot of interesting moments, kept my attention for certain. But, I mean... There's also no real wow factor to this, unfortunately, for me. I mean, there's there. I like some of the new characters, but I was looking for that. Like I was kept waiting for that wow moment that never really came. Especially you're launching a brand new storytelling initiative for Star Wars. I'm waiting for that big wow moment, and I just didn't get it. Maybe this isn't like the big introduction to the High Republic. And it was, a, again, good story. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this was a bad story. Maybe I came into it with too high of an expectation and that, you know, like the, like this was the major kickoff event for this. I know there's more story to be told here, but at the same time, I was waiting for that wow factor because I feel like that that's kind of what was built and I didn't get it. That's not a knock on anybody that was a part of this story. 
It's just that I'm I'm waiting for that moment, and maybe it's still yet to come. I'm not abandoning ship on this by any stretch. I'm still looking forward to the rest of Star Wars: The High Republic. I just didn't get that big wow moment that I was hoping for. That's going to do it for an extra-sized edition of what we're reading. Up next, let's see how much nerd news that we can get into. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Chin Han from Ghost in the Shell, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Another big name added to a Marvel Disney Plus series. It's time for nerd news, and time to make yet another confirmation on who's going to be playing a character in one of these Disney Plus series. And that's right, Oscar Isaac is confirmed to be playing Moon Knight in the upcoming series. We don't know when it's going to be coming out or anything like that. It hasn't been announced. It is filming right now in Hungary. And how do we know that? Both of these things come from cinematographer Gregory Middleton, who's working on the series. Also worked on HBO's Watchmen and Game of Thrones. Posted on Instagram gave this a location tag of where the filming was and saying, you know, how grateful that he was to be working with everyone and Oscar Isaac was on board and everybody's like, oh, okay, so that's how we're going to find out. I mean, Disney Plus kind of confirmed it, but there was like nothing super official. So everybody was kind of like, hey, so are we doing this or are we not doing this? And yes, apparently we are doing this. And if you hadn't seen the official description of the show yes yes of the show yet yes it does center around mark specter who is moon knight and he is a quote complex vigilante who suffers from disassociative identity disorder these multiple identities who live inside of him are distinct characters in the series and will appear against a backdrop of egyptian iconography now I'm reading that and I'm thinking one of two things okay and follow me on this because again there's not a whole lot of confirmation here Kevin Feige also said something about this being an Indiana Jones vibe type of a series. So is Oscar Isaac just playing one of these particular personalities or is he playing Mark Spector and he'll have a chance to play a bunch of different personalities as this show plays out? Because either, first of all, either way, I'm fine with it. Second of all, if we see Oscar Isaac playing all of these different personalities, It could actually benefit not just him, but the show, because it allows him to play multiple different characters while signing up to play one character. That's a very attractive thing, if you want to think about it, because you never get bored doing something like that, right? And you never, you know, you never feel restless because you're always doing something new. And you could always go back to one of these other characters at some point, right? Because that's kind of how the, the disorder works, so... And it would also benefit the show because it would also keep things fresh in that regard, too. And it adds an unpredictability factor to the show, too. So to me, again, and you have to understand that while there's a lot of love for the character of Moon Knight, right? As a general manner of speaking, this is still a niche character, okay? It takes something like this for non-deep-cut Marvel fans to go, oh, Moon Knight, Moon Knight's a pretty cool character. And, you know, we we know that. I mean, if you've ever read a Moon Knight comic or two or ten or a hundred, you already know that, okay? And, and I'm not as steeped in the Moon Knight lore as I should be. I realize that. I know enough about the character to know how amazing he is. But at the same time, I'm not a diehard. So this is a series that I'm really looking forward to to learn more about the character. And of course, I'm going to do my due diligence before the show comes out. But at the same time, to me, this is a very, very 
potentially attractive role, and you, I can understand why you could why you be able to get somebody like Oscar Isaac for a role like this. And this is a big deal too. You've got a name like Oscar Isaac who's done a lot of big stuff over the past several years, and now is going to be playing Moon Knight, a character that's not one of the top names in the Marvel Universe. That's a big deal, if you ask me. So this is a good get all around, and it just adds. It's even more excitement to an already hyped show, and and I'm guessing that I, it's going to be at least a couple of years before before we see this thing, especially you know with COVID and everything going on, with and filming delays are almost inevitable on almost everything. So hopefully we get to see this by what 2023 at the earliest. Hey, I'm willing to wait a little bit to get something this amazing. Here's something we won't probably have to wait too long for, and something that was confirmed by the Hollywood Reporter. And that is the next DC animated movie, or one of the next ones anyway, Justice Society World War II. That cast was just revealed. And by the way, this is going to be the first of the animated features to have the JSA as lead characters in this in, in the movie. Now, I will say that Jeff Wamester is going to be the one that's going to be directing this. You might know him from his work on Guardians of the Galaxy TV series. You've also got a script, the script by Megan Fitzmartin, who was a part of Supernatural and DC Superhero Girls, and Jeremy Adams, who's done a bunch of these DC animated movies in the past. But highlighting this cast, Matt Bomer as The Flash. And it, we're, we're thinking Barry Allen here, because we've also got Ashley Lathrop as Iris West, So we've all, but we've also got Jay, Jay Garrick in here as well. And that's going to be play. He's going to be played by Armin Taylor. So we're going to have a couple of different flashes. We're we're going to have Stan Akatic as Wonder Woman. Yeah. So they're teaming back up again. Remember they did Superman Unbound together, right? I believe it was Superman Unbound. Anyway, and, and they were amazing in that. So I can't wait to see them team up once again. But I mean, it's just Liam McIntyre is going to be voicing Aquaman. And I know you're thinking, okay, JSA. There's a lot of interesting characters in this movie but I mean Matt Matthew Mercer is going to play Iron Man you've got Hawkman in this movie as well played by Amid Abta Abta excuse me and you've also got Dr. Fate which you know how much I love Dr. Fate and thank you Keith Ferguson going to be voicing that character looking forward to seeing Dr. Fate on um, in almost anything and obviously by the title you assume this takes place in World War II it seems like if you've got you know the modern Flash Involved in this in in Barry Allen and you've got I mean Wonder Woman's almost a timeless character anyway, but there are some modern day I I put that in air quotes modern day characters that wouldn't have necessarily been around during World War Two so that we could have a time travel aspect going on here but there's really no plot details that have been released yet but I did see the first image from the movie that was provided by the Hollywood Reporter and I got to say it it already looks you know, just by one look, I love the animation style that they're going to be going with for this. And hey, I've been a huge fan and a huge proponent of these DC animated movies and saying that not enough people watch these things. And, and you know, you complain about the live action movies, but you're missing out on such a rich universe of these animated movies. If you haven't started jumping on board yet, you've got plenty. You want to binge something? You've got like 42 movies of these that you can binge. By the way, so I mean, start with almost anything and just or, you know, go back to down and nerdy dot com and just comb through all the coverage that I've had of these DC animated movies and just pick one. And, and I don't think you'll be disappointed. 
Now, you remember when I was talking to Chris Fedak and Sam Sclaver earlier on in the show, and they were teasing a, a guest that they just couldn't, it was their bursting, they couldn't wait to talk about it. Well, that interview was recorded before this news broke, and now I know what they were talking about, and that is Prodigal Son is adding Academy Award winner Catherine Zeta-Jones to the cast in a recurring role for this season. Wow, right? I mean, wow. And she's going to be playing Dr. Vivian Capshaw, who's the resident doctor at Claremont Psychiatrics. And apparently Martin Whitley's going to be assigned to the infirmary, so they'll be working together-ish. I mean, how are they going to get along? Are they? Is she just going to torture him the whole time? Figuratively, not literally. Are are they going to have like a, a a bonding moment or an uneasy bond here? There's kind of a doctor to doctor thing going on, even though we're talking about the surgeon and, and everything that that brings up. But still, it, to me, I wonder, and just the fact that we're going to be seeing Martin Sheen playing off of Catherine Zeta Jones and vice versa that that has gold written all freaking. Over it, and as as if there wasn't enough hype for season two of Prodigal Son already, there's this really really adds to it. Now we won't see her until later on in the season, and that's kind of as close. We don't have an episode number where she's going to be showing up just yet. But I mean, you want something to stick around for, and and I know you're going to want to stick around to watch the season anyway. But at the same time, you want something to stick around for. Catherine Zeta Jones and her first first real major TV role. I'm all about it. Bring it on. Can't wait to see how much she's going to be adding to the show. Going to do a little trailer talk and something, you know, for for the kids. Nothing wrong with that. Kid Cosmic, new animated series coming to Netflix on February 2nd from Powerpuff Girls creator, creator Craig McCracken. And basically, it's like when you were a kid and you pretended to have superpowers and you saved the world in your backyard or in the park with your friends, whatever. But you never actually had to do it. And Kid Cosmic d- discovers something, and he develop he- and he ends up getting powers, and now he has to try and stop an alien attack with his newly formed team, also of youngsters. And well, there's one old man in there too as well, and his grandpa's hilarious in this trailer too, by the way. And when the alien attack actually happens <laughs> in the trailer, they're not good at this hero thing at all, and it shows big time. So it kind of feels like this one. Could be a lot of fun, some over-the-top characters, some inept bad guys maybe at times because, you know, even though the heroes aren't very good at what they're doing, you can even see in the in the trailer they do have some success in what they're doing as well. But, you know, certainly something the kids would enjoy, I think, and it feels like a really relatable origin story type of series in its first season in that, yeah, your 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 kids obviously not going to be getting superpowers anytime soon, but at the same time, you know, when the imagination runs wild, they think they do. You just it just draws you in, right? So I think that this was a really cool idea for this series. I love the 2D animation style as well. I love seeing that we're getting more 2D animation series and we're not just being bombarded by these uh by these CG series. So, yeah, sign me up for this as well. February 2nd on Netflix, all 10, 10 episodes of Kid Cosmic are going to drop. You know, of course, I'm going to have a review of the series for you. I might even see what my son says about the series as well. Maybe I'll have to bring my six-year-old on the show 
and see what he thinks about it. We'll have to talk about that and see what's going to happen there. But, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one, and I'll let you know what I think of it as soon as I'm allowed to. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, I want to thank Chris Fedak and Sam Sclaver and everybody at Fox for letting me talk Prodigal Son this week. Those showrunners are amazing, and you know that Season 2 of Prodigal Son kicks off on January the 12th. It's just a few days away now. It's going to be this coming Tuesday on Fox, 9 o'clock. Make sure you are not missing that. Also, do not forget to check out our sponsors, the Amazon Original Stories, Faraway Stories. You can go to Amazon.com slash Faraway Stories. Get that collection. Read it for free or listen to it for free. If you're a Prime member, you don't want to miss out on that. You also don't want to miss out on your chance to actually win $3,000 in Kobo audiobooks. And all you have to do, well, not all you have to do, but sign up for your free trial at Kobo.com slash down and nerdy, only $12.99 a month after that. And yeah, it is an amazing collection of audiobooks. And you're, I mean, a chance to win $3,000, that's not too shabby at all. You can also keep up with what we've got going on at downandnerdypodcast.com. Also follow along on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.